What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are those of your host and today's guest. We're speaking to Rick Booker today. We talk about uh, bike racing and his journey into the fire service, but we also talk about the book that he wrote, Flame and Fortune, How the Fire Service Almost Killed Me. The title tells the tale all itself and is a story worth listening to. It's a story of healing, it's a story of recovery and uh, trauma, etc. Give it a listen. I hope you enjoy. Check one, two, three, four, five, twenty. What what TRT station did you say you were Boom, after? Twelve and twenty eight were the okay. two places. Well, I spent the most time at twelve on engine twelve. Okay. On yeah. C shift. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was C shift most of my career. Oh yeah. Is uh-huh. is Scottsdale's shift alignment the same? I think it is. It is. Yeah. So yeah, odds are that I mean we we were definitely on something together. Yeah. It's interesting that you can have calls that would be a career call elsewhere in the country mm. into a big department like one of ours. It's just a, a Thursday. Right. You know. Yeah, the number of of special operations events that happen in this metro area is phenomenal. It's quite a large, you know, quite a volume of them. Yeah, and um, and I think it's cool because we're because of our deployment model. Um, you know, you get you you get the opportunity to be a part of that as opposed mm-hmm. to it being an isolated team that's disconnected from fire operations. Like it's it's part of our yeah. part of our program. Very cool. And add the automatic aid system, and now you bring in other entire departments not right. just a group of guys within your department right it's pretty cool yeah yeah so rick if i want to talk about this great motorhome that we're in right now because <laughs> what a dope retirement setup for you man this is fantastic uh it's it's been uh it's been years in the in the making yeah you know um i took about three years to plan this and originally I wasn't going to be doing it alone, uh, but life happens and, and that happened. Uh, but yeah, the research started with, uh, I, th- I think I want, I, I want a sprinter van. I want to do the van life thing. <laughs> right. And then I realized that I couldn't really stand up, uh, straight inside. Of yeah. The well, you're, van. you're a tall fella. Yeah. Um, so then I looked at something bigger and something bigger until I walked into one of these and thought, okay, this is this is actually workable. Yeah. But, but I will say though, for those who are not here, obviously, uh, the setup you have on the back end is fantastic. You got your truck and your bikes and your, you know, all your toys mounted up back there. Yeah. It's phenomenal. So in retirement, I do want to talk to you of course about, um, you know, we want to talk about your book and talk about, um, your message when it comes to mental health. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I want to talk, I want to talk a little bit more about retirement. Yeah. So, cause to me, when we talk about, uh, this job, so many times we, we start looking toward the end, um, and what that looks like afterwards. And this is all tied together because retiring healthy, um, physically and mentally healthy is what all of us want. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, right now in retirement, you got all your toys on the back there. Where are you spending your time? I spent most of my time this summer up in Montana. Uh, but yeah, I, I did starting in April, I, I headed East 
and basically did a, a Midwest book tour. I had uh, a couple speaking gigs over there, a couple interviews uh, in Kansas and in Missouri. Uh, visited family down in Texas, and then I made my way up through um, through the Dakotas and into um, Idaho and Montana. Nice. So yeah, I it spent, sounds awful. It was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> the the hardest thing about it was deciding what I wanted to do that day. Right? Do I want to hike or ride or climb or kayak? Yeah, what or a problem! Fly that fish. Have. Golly. But if you look, looking back at it and kind of where I was mentally at the time, I was I was still reeling from from a loss mm -hmm. of a relationship. Yeah. So I just needed to kind of figure out where I was as a, as a person and, yeah. and what I wanted yeah. out of life. I had this purpose through RB603 and doing public speaking and, and working to do advocacy work uh, for first responder and military mental health and wellness. Yeah. But I was still trying to figure out how that was going to fit into my life and how that was going to fit into my travel model. Yeah. So the, all these, all the adventure sports that I do um, are really therapeutic for me yeah and i mean there i was in high gear with all that stuff over the summer nice to, to some extent i still am but yeah that really helped me kind of figure out what i wanted to do and and on what terms so i spent i spent about five or six weeks within 60 miles of the canadian border uh in and around glacier national park i strung 40 days together where i fly fished every day um I just, I had an incredible summer. And then I started working my way south through, through Idaho. Uh, Flame and Fortune, how the fire service almost killed me, had come out in, in book form early in the year. But I didn't have the audio version recorded well, I, yet. I was going to say, I saw that it recently came out as an audible or it an did. audio book. Yeah, so that's a, the, the print version is available through print on demand on 19 different platforms worldwide. Uh, and I, I self-published that. And through that same self-publishing platform, I was able to upload all the audio files. Yeah. The original plan was to, to record that in a friend's studio. And I think he came to realize that that was going to require probably a month or more of work and dedication from his intern that he, he just couldn't take away from his personal podcast. So being a do-it-yourselfer... I did it myself. Nice. How'd, so, you, yeah. how'd you do it? Did you create a little sound booth or something? Or uh, I, I, I have limited, um, I have limited space here in the rig, sure. and it can be noisy depending on where you're parked. Yeah, that makes sense. So I thought, okay, if the outside environment is kind of my sound booth that determines what the inside sound levels are, let's get as far away from everything as possible. So I found a I found a little lake in the backcountry in in Idaho. Did a little recon in the in the rover to to make sure I could get this rig out there. Yeah. And then yeah, I spent um, I spent two weeks on state land in Idaho above a little lake and recorded the whole thing myself. And then went back into into a spot in West Yellowstone and did all the post processing and, and all that. Nice. So in the in the process, I learned how GarageBand works <laughs> and how to edit. That's awesome. And I fully expected it to get rejected. Yeah. Uh, because they're pretty audible, especially, is, is very particular about their sound quality and their levels. It got accepted first try. So nice. that's available on 45 different platforms 
worldwide. Right on. Yeah. Well, now, so I, I do most of my, uh, I'm throwing up some air quotes here, reading uh -huh. uh, through Audible. Yeah. And so now I'm all disappointed that I have the hard copy and I had to plow through it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to labor and read when I could have just listened to your smooth voice. Nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, that smooth voice got cut off in a couple chapters. There were there were a couple chapters that were you know maybe thirty to forty minutes long, and they got cut off to six minutes for whatever reason when they posted to the platforms. Oh, interesting. So I've since um, I've since repaired all that, and I'm waiting for the Audible version to come come back up. It oh, should cool. Be within a couple of weeks, or right. by the time this comes out, hopefully. Yeah. Well, we'll look for it when it. Uh, yeah, this will publish in a couple of weeks, and that'll be perfect yeah. timing. Yeah. Perfect. So yeah, after Idaho, I made my way back down uh, south through Wyoming, spent about five weeks in southern Wyoming and, and kind of the northern Utah area, visited family. And I wanted to come down and see my mom for Thanksgiving, and so I, I came back to the valley Nice. that. Well, and this is the perfect time of year to be here, and you know, oh, yeah. this is our this playland right here is uh, phenomenal. And I love that we're, we're sitting right at the base of the McDowell Mountains, yeah. and um as I was driving up this morning, I'm like, what an amazing, what an amazing view. And I love that your rig is parked with the front windshield looking right up at that. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, well, so and let's, you know, I want to talk about your journey a little bit in the fire service. And it's, to me, it's quite, it's quite a, a cool coincidence that we're parked at the foot of the McDowell's um, where you, you know, in Scottsdale, where you present, you spent your career yeah. And kind of the, you know, it's kind of a full circle for me as I, as I read your book and, and, you know, track your career. And here we are back sitting right here looking up at these mountains. Yeah. So, you know, your career ended with some mental health stuff. And so I want to sort of talk through, well, sort of what brought you to the fire service in the first place? You know, yeah. like you come out, where'd you grow up? First of all, grew up in Fort Worth, Texas until I was 14. Okay. And then family moved out here when my dad re relocated for his career. So that was in 87. And the um, cycling was, was huge in my life uh, from, from an early age. I raced BMX as a kid back in Texas. And then when we came out here. Um, like around the neighborhood or like legit BMX racing? No, tra yeah, <laughs> with helmet, goggles, tra you know, on the track, do jumps and all that. Okay. So I think I started... Uh, yeah, I, I started at age 12 doing that. So we moved here when I was 14 and then, uh, and then I got into road bike racing and then just a couple of years after that I was mountain bike racing. So over the course of my career, I, I raced for over 30 years. I actually done a mountain bike race a couple of weeks ago up in Cave Creek. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of still doing it. I'm I, th I feel like you're if you really get into cycling, you're a cyclist for life. Yeah. Because you can do it at any level. You don't right. have to ride fast. You don't right. have to race. There's well, always, there's something for everybody. Last year, I did the 24 hours old Pueblo solo. Okay. And oh wow, which is a you know I like and for me I was like hey man I am going to my objective is to ride 100 miles over the course of a 24 hour period, not anywhere near uh, the competitive level in any phase right, yeah. but for me. I was coming off the couch. I had been injured. I was like, I'm going to go do this thing. And to, uh, to set that as a bar and go out and pedal. And I, I was like, Hey man, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to go fast. I'm not racing this. I am racing in myself in this event. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, to go out and, you know, get up at midnight and then go out at three in the morning and then go out at six in the morning and watch the sunrise after, you know, pedaling all night. What an yeah. amazing feeling. Yeah. But, 
Um, and, so and, so cycling, at any age, in any phase. <laughs> cycling is uh, cycling's how I got into the fire service. Oh, really? So here's how. It? Okay. There was a Phoenix fire guy that worked at the same bike shop that I used to spin wrenches at. Oh, okay. And one day he said, hey, anybody that wants to do a ride along, you're more than welcome. So one Saturday I showed up and we did nothing. <laughs> Until evening, uh, we're wrapping up from dinner, tones drop, we all run out to the truck. And it was a working structure fire. It was a model home. So we pull up, there's black smoke pumping out of the front door. Hugh and his and his crew disappear uh, into the into the house and uh, the black smoke turns to, to gray to white as they get water on it. And they come out covered in insulation and high fiving and we ride back to the station after a few hours and I think this is it. And at the time, I was taking classes for a business degree that I didn't want <laughs> and just kind of, you know, freewheeling, really. Yeah. Um, so what I saw was adventure. Mm -hmm. What I saw was culture. What I saw was a tribe. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that I was seeing all those things. Retrospectively, I can look back now and, and identify that as right. being attractive to me. Right. But at the time, I just thought it was some cool stuff to do. Right. So within a couple of days, I, I walked into a, a Scottsdale fire station, which was rural metro at the time. This is that was back close to home 90, or something? Is that why? Yeah, or? it was right down the street. Oh, yeah. Uh, this would have been about 92. And I asked them if there were any jobs there. And then they asked me if I was an EMT. And I said, no. What's um, that? So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I went and got my EMT cert, kind of changed paths from that business degree over to more of an emergency uh, services path and one thing led to another and I showed up and, and there was a fire captain there that was that was in charge newly in charge of the, the reserve program in central Scottsdale at the time and he pretty much hired me that was it I didn't stand in a line <laughs> with you know 5,000 other people to get one of a hundred applications right I didn't sit in front of an oral board I didn't do a written test you feel bad about all that? Terrible, <laughs> so guilty. Uh, it's funny to me though. Like your your journey is it, there's your journey is your journey. Everybody's got yeah. these different pathways in. It's so funny to me. My the, very first ride along, uh, I'm there for thirty. Oh, I was about thirty minutes, and they popped a fire. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, this job is amazing. <laughs> right. I wonder that would be an interesting statistic to find out. What right. Are, what are the odds of you? Starting a fire service career, if on your first ride along, or on some ride along, you see something. Right. It's got to set a hook. Yeah. Because there's something, you know, you showed up for a ride along for a reason. You're like, yeah. oh, there's something attracting me to this. Right. And then when you get there and you have that monumental experience, you're like, oh. Yeah. And, and I think also you mentioned the tribe, right? You see how the firefighters responded to that. Sure. The joy, the, the, the. Yeah, the banter. Yeah, all of yes. that's all of that is present in a bike shop. And I worked in some big uh, bike shops. Yeah, makes sense. With, yeah, you know, five or eight employees on at the same time. Well, and, and you know that that banter, you know, while you're spinning wrenches or building right. or repairing bikes, it's yeah. the same thing. Well, and you you raced uh, competitively at a pretty high level yeah. um, on teams, mm -hmm. right? And which is not unlike mm -hmm. right. So Teamwork. talk about talk about cycling for a second, like. At that elite level, what does a cycle, like those road cycling in particular, what does road cycling look like as a team sport? On the surface, it does not look like a team sport to most people who either see somebody riding down the, down the road while they're driving 
or even a group of riders or, you know, seeing the Tour de France on TV. Right. So th- those two polar opposites. The thing about cycling is road cycling in particular. Mountain biking is completely different. That's a very much an indiv- individual sport. Um, road cycling is interesting because the, the terrain varies greatly. There are races that are flat. There are races that are hilly. There are races that are fast. There are races that are slow, relatively. And you, you have different body types of cyclists. So the, the short, skinny guys that, you know, that are super light are going to always excel in the mountains. That was never me. I was, I was 6'2", 165 pounds when I graduated high school. So I was on, you know, and I, and I grew up doing team sports. So on the football team, I was one of the small guys, played defensive end and, and, um, and tight end. Um, so I had some speed, but I didn't have, I didn't have the size. Right. But as a cyclist, that made me a sprinter. And anything that was fast. And I would imagine uh, BMXing, like that that, that cadence. Yeah. Yeah, burst out of the gate. Right. That was me. So if if, if it was a relatively flat, fast race and I was around at the end, odds were pretty good that I was going to deliver a good result. The way a team uh, works with that, let's say you have five riders. One person can win. One person is going to win. The other four are going to work. Right. And that means sacrificing their result for somebody else. Knowing that eventually that that turn is going to come around and it'll, it'll be their turn when we're in a hilly, you know, a hilly race or something. And now I sacrifice for, for a smaller guy. Right. A sprinter typically in a, in a large group. And what I loved about sprinting was, you know, you're, you're doing 40 miles an hour at for the last few kilometers of a, of a road race, you're banging elbows with, with the guys next to you. And you're, you're essentially in battle, but you cannot get into the front and, and push all that wind by yourself for the last few kilometers. Right. You need teammates in front of you and you need organization and you need communication within the team. And if you can line four guys for four of my teammates up who have some good guidance and leadership and they know what to do, there's, there's no way we're not going to deliver the goods. And I say we, because I, I, it wasn't I, if I want a bike race, I took the prize money and distributed it among the guys that worked. That's how, how the team works. So when it, when the time came for me to sacrifice my result for, for teammates in the mountains or something, you better believe I, I did it. And I wound up finishing off the back of the group, uh, as, as the price that I paid for that. Right. But when, I mean, I have pictures of, I have pictures of myself coming across the finish line with my arms in the air and teammates further back in the pack in the distance within the frame of, of the photo with their arms in the air because we win as a team and we lose as a team. Yeah. And that translates to the fire service really well. Yeah. But I, th- I think the key is getting that across to new members who have never competed in anything like that, mm. who have, who don't have that experience to draw upon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so road cycling, total team sport. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I love the idea of the, um, 
the going into a race knowing, hey, this race is going to have this dynamic, this type of terrain. This is going to be a perfect race for um, for getting you to the front, right? You know, hey, this is yeah. going to be a sprint finish. We know that based on the dynamics, and and all the other teams are trying to do the same thing, yeah. right? So there's a lot of strategy and and pre planning and preparation that goes into it. Not to mention the training and the nutrition and all the other, all the other variables that at any given day can be a train wreck. Yeah. Right. Totally. So the, the parallels are striking yeah. bet- between that and the fire service. Yeah. Well, the only thing that surprises or that stands out to me immediately is the teamwork component is absolutely identical. The difference is on any given day, there's no peaking. There's no, Hey, we put a plan together <laughs> and we're going to show up at peak level. Yeah. You show up on any given day. And the dynamics are what the dynamics are. You come in tired. You come in miserable. You know, you had a tough night at home with a brand new baby or whatever. Whatever the variable is, right? You show up to work and that team has to uh, align yeah. and and figure out how they're going to work for the day. Yeah. The only the only ideal call would be like take a TRT. Uh, you get a confined space call on the way home from confined space drill. all right we just did this we are dialed in same evolution we know exactly where everything is on the truck it's all ready to roll and we'll do it yeah assuming you put it away right (laughs) right but that never happens right well you have to be that's the interesting thing in the fire service you have to be ready for anything at Mm -hmm. any time yeah that's that's attractive Mm -hmm. but i think on some level deep into a career it it becomes uh, it can become terrifying to, yeah. to some extent when you're, I mean, I, I spent the last few years of my career hoping the tones never went off again. I was, I was done. I didn't want to run calls anymore. Yeah. I didn't want to see and do all this stuff anymore. And it's because I, I didn't know how to take care of my mental health. Yeah. Is that, um, when did you recognize that or did you not, did you recognize it? Was, it? it was too late. Yeah. It was too late. So let's talk about your career a little bit. So you came in, you got hired on as a reserve yep. and how long were you reserved before you were full-time? Almost three years. And that's a weeding out process that, mm-hmm. that takes the place of the oral board and the written test and the, all, yeah. all that in a, in a traditional hiring uh, situation that goes on now. Right. Um, I mean, if you, if you made it through a couple of years as a reserve, you really wanted it. Yeah. Uh, was it like were, a paid on call type situation or it was, you were not paid on call. You were paid for calls. That's what I meant. That's right. That's yeah, what I meant to say. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you showed up to a reserve call out, you were paid hourly. And I, I did, let's see, I think I made two seventy five an hour. Nice. <laughs> when <laughs> yeah, I started rolling in it. two seventy five an hour. And then rural supplemented their full-time forces with reserves so mm-hmm. you you went through all your all your basic training you went through a firefighter academy firefighter one and two and all that and then i got interested in wildland so i took i don't know probably 20 uh, national wildfire coordinating group classes and got qualified as a crew boss and a squad boss and an engine boss and all that stuff because that was a good way to make to make money because there right. were more call outs and, and if you could go out on, on public land or federal land, you made more money. Yeah. Did you keep doing wildland throughout your career? No way. <laughs> Once you got it. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I got hired full time, uh, I was a firefighter EMT and I got interested in being a, you know, medic. Uh, so yeah, so all yeah, that shoveling you know, and all that bullshit. Yeah. 
Yeah, for those don't, that don't know, Wildland is a that's a camping trip with landscaping. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's hard work. Um, it was good. It was fulfilling. Yeah, because I I love the outdoors. I, I you know love enjoying public land and national forest land, and and it felt good to kind of be a steward of that and to protect it. But as time went on, and I and, you know you become a a city firefighter, that becomes your your focus. And you're you're working 24-hour shifts or more. Right. I mean, I worked more as a reserve. God, there were there were months where I worked 20 shifts. So I worked more as a reserve than I ever worked full time. But the the medic side of things was purely because I wanted to be able to do more on calls. Yeah. Because I saw my my first day as a as a TRT member, technical rescue team member, mm-hmm. was my first day as a booter out of the academy. Uh, which is very unusual. Completely unusual. Yeah. That's usually, that's that's like five five to ten years traditionally, yeah. I think. Was in, that a just a, just a gap in staffing and they're like, we need a guy who's interested? And- there, there wound up being an opening, but I was able to slide into it because during that time as a reserve, I went to all the TRT drills. Oh, there you go. And, I, I mean, I started climbing rock in 87, so I, I've had a rope in my hands for, you know, most of my life. Right. And was very comfortable with it. And when I showed up to TRT drill and, and they handed me some equipment to set something up, they, they kind of, they kind of went, okay, how, he how do has you a, know that? Like, has what a clue. Is, what's your yeah. deal? Um, and I, I did very well in my academy and that, yeah, as a consequence or as a benefit, um, they, they sent me to the, the most coveted opening in the city at that point. So, yeah, I, I started uh, in 1996 as a TRT member right away. Nice. And But what I saw was if there was a situation where only one guy was going in to do a rescue or a recovery or some kind of work that had to do with a patient, it was always a medic. Hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be a medic. I want to be that guy. Yeah. 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 So that set me on that path. and And then within, gosh, within... I'd say by about the year 2000, I was kind of the go-to guy. I was kind of the go-to medic on the truck. So I got all the, I got to do all the cool stuff, but I had to do all the cool stuff. Right. So there's a, there's, there's this odd tipping point in, in my career where it's kind of like type two fun. It's fun until it's not fun. Right. And then it, it becomes something else. Um, I think that, I mean, I've, I've said it in other interviews, but if, if it'll go to 11, I, I do, I, I, I do it. I take it, I take whatever it is in my life to 11, whether it's riding and racing or climbing or, or being a TRT medic. I, and, and the way that I took it to 11 was I, I dialed up my skills hmm. and I volunteered as a, as an instructor for the regional training consortium. So I taught regional in every TRT discipline for years. What I didn't really see was that I, I think part of that at least was looking back on calls in those disciplines that did not go well, that mm-hmm. wound up being a body recovery instead of a rescue. Yeah. And that, that put a desire in me to never have those things happen again. Mm-hmm. So training. Yeah 
was a way that I thought I could solve that problem. Much the same way that if I, if I didn't deliver the goods in a sprint in a bike race, you better believe that the next few weeks I was doing sprint workouts right. because I was training to, to try and get a, you know, get a better outcome. So that translated the, you know, again yeah. to the fire so, service. So you were, I'll just say predisposed, I guess your personality was, I will win this call to use yeah. to words in your mouth, but that's yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then the idea, I mean, and there's so many of our calls, uh, we don't get to, uh, determine the outcome. Right. Even our best efforts. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you start with a non-viable patient, you know, for a code or respiratory arrest or something like that. Right. No amount of, of magic medic skills. What about bicarb? How much bicarb? (laughs) Hose them down, like soak them in bicarb. Right. Um, yeah, no amount of, of any of that stuff is going to, is going to fix things that are not fixable. Yeah. Which goes into the risk management profile. You know, right. we'll risk a little to save a little, but we won't risk anything to save that which is already lost. Right. Um, that didn't translate from cycling. That was purely fire service based. Yeah. Because in cycling, um, for a teammate, I would tear my heart out and throw it across the finish line if I if I thought it would help us win as a team. There's, there's that sentiment. I think in the fire service, we want to do good. We want to help people. We want to save lives and protect property, but we'll only do it up to a certain point because we have to continue saving lives and and protecting property. We have to run the next call. Yeah. What we don't do is take care of our mental health. Right. Well, so you're absolutely right. So go back a step though. When you talk about the, uh, the win versus loss, equation right um how are we setting ourselves up for failure in in the sense that um you know because there's so many calls we go on where we don't control the outcome it is what it is this person uh, made some poor choices and here they are and we are not going to save them or i mean and there's times when we're like hey this could be viable and this is the ones that always got me was i don't and this is kind of what you're saying is i never want to be on a call where my skills were deficient and I couldn't make a difference when, when I look back and go, yeah, I could have made a difference if I had known what the hell I was doing. Isn't that the worst? Right. Well, that's the thing that I was, was always afraid of. I don't want to be making, you know, getting ready to key the mic and say something dumb that's going to lead somebody into a bad situation right. or, you know, I'm drawing up meds and because I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I'm not well-trained or, or haven't given my training good, you know, good heed that I make a bad decision um, or do something mm-hmm. poorly that's what scared me more than anything. Um, and so how do you reckon that's, that's why while I was riding my bike to work, I was, I was rehearsing on scene reports Mm -hmm. out loud. Yeah. When I, when I retired, I was a firefighter paramedic, but I was also an acting captain and Mm -hmm. an acting engineer. So I could do any job on the, in any seat on the truck, except for hazmat and ARF, but who wants to do that? (laughs) Um, and, and riding along thinking about, um, treatment protocols and drug doses and just, and just reviewing and getting myself mentally in the game and, and, and ready. Well, and those, (laughs) that the, the code save and the, the loss stop at just the kitchen for a, for a fire or a 
a mountain rescue where you, you get the patient off the mountain safely and transported and treated. Those are the wins. Yeah. But the losses are the, the code that you know as a medic in your heart that you could have saved, but something went wrong. Right. Minor or major, whatever it was. And that happens. Or the uh, the working fire that you went into and it was zero visibility and, and yeah it was just a kitchen fire, but it wound up extending up into the attic and then 20 30 minutes into the firefight the BC in command pulls us out because the swamp cooler is about ready to fall through the roof. That's a loss. But and then when you go in to do overhaul, you find the body in the hallway. Um, yeah. Or the mountain rescue that winds up being a, a body recovery instead of a rescue. Those are the losses. Yeah. And so we ask ourselves, you know, what could we have done differently? Did our training fail us? Did we not train enough? Did we yeah. did we not turn the page on it? You know, in the training manual, we miss a whole piece that right. we're supposed to be uh, knowledgeable on. And so when we talk about mental health, which you were, you're about to step into and I cut you off, how do we reconcile that? How do we do that better? It takes leadership. Yeah. So in, in the same way that in the same way that command staff, senior staff, the fire chief are are there for us with fleet support and maintenance, equipment maintenance, um, policies and procedures, SOGs, SOPs. Oh, you're uh, talking medic, sweet music you know, in my ears. All, all the good that, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the same way that that they're there for us with all of those things. It starts from the top with mental health. And I mean, it's, it's 2023. We're almost 2024 now. This mm -hmm. is, this is not a mystery. Everybody knows that, that mental health in the fire service and, and first responders and military is a thing. Yeah. In my travels, I'm finding that there are two problems in the U S yeah. The, and to be clear, what you're, you're, are you going out and you're speaking and talking to people about this right now? Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I tell my story and what I like to do is show up ahead of time and, and do some recon and research. And I'll yeah. tell you about that in a minute, but okay. in, in traveling around and I've, I've appeared on some, some big podcast platforms and I always put my contact information and stay tuned cause you'll get it at the end of yeah. this one. Um, I have people reach out to me from around the country and, and out of the country a little bit. There's two problems, generally speaking large departments that have a robust mental health program in place, good resources that aren't getting used by the crews mm -hmm. or small departments that have no resources, but are still running the same traumatic calls and, and doing the same things, albeit on a smaller scale. However, yeah. Yeah. what I came to realize is that volunteers are running all those calls in their little town yeah. on their neighbors doing chest compressions mm. on people they know. Yeah. So it's no less traumatic for them. If, if anything, it's worse. Yeah. Um, but they don't have any mental health resources. So it's, it's one of those two things. The culture is hanging things up and people aren't stepping forward and asking for help and using the tools that are available. Right. Or the culture is stuck in, in neutral and they need, want and need help but it's not there. Yeah. So what I hear you talking about is there's two, two lanes, right? There's the organizational imperative, 
but there's right. also the cultural piece. Yes. And, and those are, there's two different obstacles there, right? Both, yeah. both, both are present. Right. And in every organization, they're, they're present in different ways. Um, what do you think the, what do you think the cultural obstacle is? Like, why are, I mean, I know what I grew up with and, uh, and uh, me too. Yeah. What year did you start in the fire service? 98. Okay. So we're, yeah. And I came uh, out of the Marine Corps and into the, into the fire yeah. service. So it was present there as well. Same of culture, course. which is just, yeah, which is suck it up. Right. Why are you such a wuss? Right. Uh, this didn't bother me. We were yeah. on the same call. Yeah. It's never a problem before. Right. We don't have time for that. I mean, I've heard, I've heard things like, um, how poetic. We oh, got to hear that? We Music got of siren, our people. Sirens in the background. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I've heard things like check your feelings at the door. Mm. Um, put your feelings in a box, put those on a shelf. You get them back at the end of your shift. Um, yeah, things like that. And yeah. when, when we started those mental health resources were not present there. If you, if you right. went to get help, it was on your own dime or through your, through your insurance. And it was not a department sponsored or sanctioned thing. Right. That care was something that you had to go outside to right. get. We had to do a lot of work to figure out that it was even available to you. Right. Right. Like that was, and, and, and asking that question it takes a degree of vulnerability that is pretty damn scary. Sure. And I think, uh, I'll and offer you know this. What? Even at that point, the internet was just getting going. Oh, right. There, you couldn't go to couldn't just Google or it. Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever, you know, online yeah. and enter, I'm looking for a, a trauma specialist right. or a family uh, counselor. Right. You had to call. Right. And then ask if they could even get you in. Right. So there were a lot more barriers which is what's so frustrating now because there are fewer barriers from the provider side of things, but the culture keeps hanging us up. So again, that comes from the top, just like all the, uh, all the fleet and equipment and, and policies and all that, that stage has to be set. And the fire chief has to make it clear that it's okay to take good care of yourself. Right. I say it that way because if I said this, it's okay to go get help. It sounds different. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. One implies just, that you're a broken toy. Yeah. Right. Which is what which is what we none of us wants to. We don't want to be that. I don't want to be broken. Right. Um. I don't want to be injured. Right. Especially when it's an invisible injury. Right. Because if I walk in on crutches, everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, what happened to you? Tell me the story. It's, How are you?" Uh, Rain. It's funny. It's, yeah. It's invisible. Yeah. Until you know what to look for. Right. Well, yeah. And have you seen and, the Paul Combs moving, cartoon moving around? I, I see it. I mean, I, in a group of fire guys, yeah. I, I, I know who's affected yeah. now. And that's just cause I've seen somebody. Yeah. Well, Sorry, it, the cartoon. Yeah. Have you seen that Paul Combs cartoon? The two firefighters in the back seat, and the one's got a sign around his neck and it says something like, I'm thinking about killing myself or something like that. Yeah. And then Paul Combs, of course, is saying something along the lines of, you know, the signs aren't always that obvious, right? <laughs> and it's so True, real. Yeah. Like we're sitting here going, well, I find out like so many times, um, this has happened multiple times in my career. We've had guys take their own lives and the crew surrounding them is like, dude, I thought everything was just okay. Right. I thought everything was fine. We had talked no about idea. it, whatever, you know, yeah. or, or I had no idea he was going through, you know, it, yeah. whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, so for you, you know, you talk about being able to see some of those signs. What, what stands out to you? Looking at my own signs and symptoms, um, 
and this is a it, it's a tangled web, but we'll we'll kind of push through this and little we'll, we'll be sweeping spider webs off our face for a second. But, okay, because it jumps around a little All right, bit. I'm prepared. Um, no mental health resources available when I started. Right, a stigma involving any kind of mental health as as being a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. At some point. CISM, Critical Incident Stress Management, came around and they asked people to volunteer and and people in the department uh, got on that team. I used it for for a few traumatic calls in in the late 90s, early 2000s. But it went something like this. Um, The CISM team member showed up and we talked about the call didn't really focus on what went well. It might've been focusing on what went poorly a little bit. There was a little bit of guidance from, from that person. And then, okay, on, uh, on your day off tomorrow, go golfing, go for a bike ride, take, you know, do some self care, take good care of yourself. And, um, and let me know if you have any issues. And then you put the truck back in service and, and run the next call. Right. Which could be another traumatic messed up one. So right. CISM, CISM was the truck cranking, but not starting. Mm-hmm. It was, it was trying to get started, but it wasn't firing and, up. And there's some evidence that the, the CISD CISM process can actually be a little bit more traumatic as we sit around the table and done the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. Tell me your process. What did you see? What did you see? And now we go around the table. Now I've got a full 360 of what happened versus yeah. just my own perspective, right? Which is an interesting anecdote, but yeah, but yeah CISD yeah. has got issues. It, it did. Yeah. And then at some point that, that transitioned into a program called peer support, uh-huh. which got the truck running because it was, it was though it was that same type of a visit at, to the station after after the call, um, and go back a second. CISM had to be initiated by the crew. You had to ask for it. Do you think anybody asked for it? Yeah, because no. who you got to ask? Thing, you're going to go up your chain of command and say, "Hey, send somebody." Right. No. So it's not rarely did that ever happen. Right. And in the times that it did, I insisted that it happen as a firefighter. You know, and I, I'm standing there in a captain's office and the captain is, is look at me going, are, um, are you, are you sure we need, we need to do that? Are you sure we need to get them here? Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm freaking sure. Yeah. Well, and let's pause for one second. You think about the, the guy you're talking to, right? This captain, probably some, you know, a salty grizzled old sure. veteran. And who I started in the seventies, right? Who started in the seventies. And I think about their predecessors who were world war two veterans Right. And, and what was the dynamic for them? They come back from these events and they had uh, long transition times back to the world, if you will. So they're processing and they're like, Hey man, they're, they're, you know, they have built this uh, coping mechanisms and and then they had this transition time back from these events. And so I, I, you know, I think about some of these guys and they're like, I've never had these problems. What's changed. Well, what's changed? Call volumes increased. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the societal pressures have changed, that like the dynamics in our communities have changed, oh, yeah. all that stuff. It has an effect. So the job has evolved into something totally different. We're running more EMS than our predecessors ever did. Right? Way more. Yeah. yeah. Which is a, just a different dynamic, um, which we are, you know, either equipped or not equipped for when you start talking about like the, you know, uh, societal mental health piece that we're dealing with. We're not 
you know, psychologists and sociologists, right? right. So, yeah. The, the peer support program came around and the, and the truck got started because we had those meetings at the station after, after a traumatic call, they took on a different yeah. format, I think, and they were more supportive. But at the end of that meeting, they were meant to say, follow up your, with your mental health care professional after this. Right. Be very cognizant of any changes that happen in a month from now, because that's when, when signs and symptoms can, can crop up, up to a month from the time of the trauma. Yeah. Um, here's a list of our providers. Here's a, you know, there, there are resources at the end of, of that. And in that same piece, there are departments now that, you know, for any kind of a, for any kind of a flagged call, like a, uh, a fatality fire, a, a drown, a particularly a pediatric drowning, mm. uh, tr you know, traumatic calls or anytime the crew requests it, peer support automatically goes to the station after the call. So they're, they're showing up and the support is there without it being asked for in a lot of cases, which is great. Yeah. So we're, we are making that transition, but there, there is peer support out there that doesn't necessarily follow up and have, have that end piece of here are your resources that are available because yeah. not every department has that. Right. Not every de department has a psychiatrist or psychologist on staff or mm -hmm. on call. Right. But it's, it's starting to, that's starting to change. Yeah. Yeah. The well, culture though mm -hmm. is, is, is the barrier. The, that meeting, that peer support, uh, comes to an end where the engineer or crew member goes out and, and hits AIQ or calls dispatch and says you're available, whatever your department does. It just kind of ends there yeah. and drifts off into the ether for a lot of departments. Yeah. And the, and it's the culture that, that is the barrier there. Right. So how do you have a culture where folks need to be aggressive type a, um, all in and yet vulnerable enough to take care of themselves. Right. And I, and I, I kind of a rhetorical question, I, but I, I do feel like it's a, it's a real problem, right? We want to be tough. And in the moment when you're in the middle of an intense situation, you need to hold it together and, and be the uh, person who is in charge in charge of your own emotions at the very least. Yeah, right. Yeah. But so how do you reconcile that or how do you manage that, um, without falling apart? Without falling apart on the scene well, or falling apart afterwards I think and, it's both. and saying, I can't run calls anymore. Yeah. I think it's both. Again, I think it starts at the top and, and the requirement there is that your command staff worked in the field at some point. Yeah. And at some point utilize mental health resources. This problem rain is going to, it's going to solve itself eventually with time because all the old school guys are going to retire. Yeah. And the new, quote new, new school guys who do utilize mental health resources and have had them available throughout their whole career right. are going to be the ones with white shirts and gold bugles right. running the show. Right. And it, that example is we lead by example. We mentor our new people. If you have a fire chief who can visit a station and say, Hey, I hope you guys are taking good care of yourselves and each other. I ran a call 
just like this years ago and I got a tune up. I went in and, and dealt with, with issues with my mental health professional and I never would have made it to fire chief, battalion chief, assistant chief, captain, whatever that rank is. Right. If I hadn't taken care of myself. Right. Because I know I can keep doing this career and remain healthy. And that's what I want for you guys. That staff has to show up. That staff has to be present. That battalion chief needs to be there along with the peer support crew. They were on the same call. I know BC has plenty to do after a fatality fire or after um, something newsworthy. But that doesn't keep them from being able to to call their neighboring BC and say, hey, bro, cover for me for an hour. I've got to go to 603 and sit down with these guys. Yeah. And then when he sits down with those guys and gals, I say guys figuratively, sits down with those guys, says, hey, I am super proud of, of the way you handled yourselves today, regardless of the outcome. Yes, it was tragic. Uh, yes, I understand that. But I am so proud that none of you got hurt. You provided great service. It looked amazing from the outside. Um, don't be too hard on yourselves. But I know you're going to be because I know how I felt when that same exact thing happened. I'm, I'm here with you and I'm here for you. Use your resources. They're available. Yeah. That's, that's all it takes. But getting past that, getting that difficult conversation started, and, and I guarantee you there are BCs out there that if they said exactly what I said to one of their crews, they would have tears in their eyes that's okay to do be human show right. empathy right show that that you really care about your crews and that you are willing to to take care of them that you're willing to tear your heart out and throw it across the finish line so that they can win right it's um you're absolutely right you have to show up for your people and it's not enough to just uh physically walk in and be like everyone good you know, pulse check, here's a box of donuts. Mm -hmm. I'm out. You have to, you have to be a little bit vulnerable yourself and, and to demonstrate empathy. It's not enough to just say, Hey, I'm here. You have to say, Hey, that looked awful. Yeah. That, that had to hurt. Right. You know? Um, and, and like you said, I love that. Just be human, right? Like you have to meet them where they are. So many times though, we hear people just say, well, golly, if they were just, you know, a little tougher. God, I can't believe they're using the tiger act. Oh, I can't believe they're mm -hmm. going to the center for excellence. What? Well, first of all, get over yourself. Believe it because yeah. it's, it's real. It's a thing. It ain't going anywhere. Yeah, it's real. So uh, you're right. Leaders need to uh, open their eyes. And I think as leaders evolve and change and, and, and retire, that mm -hmm. helps. Um, but what I would say is that change needs to happen today. We can't wait around uh, for that to happen. So yeah. uh, you know, the expression I like to use is lead where you are. So if you're a backseat firefighter, start leading your engine company, right? It will have effects in your department. Um, hold the organization accountable for these important mandates, right? For our health, just like, you know, we come into the station and what's what we all, what are we going to eat today? And when are we going to work out? <laughs> right. right. Well, and, and also what are you doing for your brain? Right. For your mental wellness. Right. You know, was there, are you checking in on your head, on your headspace and timing? Um, and same thing with your, you know, your counterparts. Are you checking in on each other? Cause that's, and it doesn't have to be all syrupy and crazy and, you know, uh, and, and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
woo-woo. Yeah. Cuddly. Gonna be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Care Bears. That, <laughs> right. that was one of the terms back in the day. Right. Um, I think that, I think that difficult conversations are difficult for a reason. Yeah. Um, but if you step back and you look at that and realize that it, it takes a brave person to do difficult things. Mm-hmm. There's nothing cowardly about um, asking a crew member to come in to the captain's office and close the door or asking to go into the captain's office with a captain and close the door and right. have a conversation. Um, that's, that's bravery that, mm-hmm. that takes guts. And for all of those things that we just talked about for the last 20 minutes, that's the call that kind of sums up the cultural yeah. hurdles. Yeah. That's, that's what's going on. Well, and, and I want to, but there's no, there, it's going to solve itself in maybe 10 years, but, but we're going to lose people to suicide or yeah. just living really poorly between now and then. And right. they're just, there isn't, we don't have that time to waste. Right. Well, this takes me right back to the beginning of our conversation, which is I want my brothers and sisters on this job, wherever you are to retire fully intact, yeah. physically, mentally, emotionally. And that takes changing the paradigm today. You don't have, you can't wait for some chief to retire. Fuck that guy. Right. right? We got to change it yeah. today. Right. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I'm in my mind, I'm reflecting back on your story and, and we didn't really unpack your story all the way, yeah, we'll get um, there. but I would love be a big batch of spider webs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I want you to, so you, you come from a place of, of, uh, deep intimate knowledge, um, because you were, uh, well, you attempted to take your life. Yeah. So what, I mean, you ran a crap ton of calls. They were awful. They do blah, blah, blah. But when you reflect back on that, what was it that led you to that point or, you know, the culmination of all that. Tell me a little bit about that. I've used, I've used this analogy a lot to describe my, my state at that point. Uh, picture, picture a Toyota Hilux or Toyota pickup somewhere in India and it's loaded with 10 people. Uh, it's pulling a cart behind it. Um, it's got a, a chicken coop and, a, and three goats in the, in the bed um, it, you know, it's just piled high. The, the suspension is completely compressed. Tires are bulging and a, a bird flies over and a single feather falls out of that bird, lands on top. The whole thing collapses. Mm. That was me in 2019. Uh, on September 12th of 2019, I killed myself. And I say I killed myself because I, I did. I was rescued. Um, I had been running, um, I had been running at a very high level on the, on the TRT team for a very long time. Um, I'd been precepting new paramedics. I'd been teaching regional drill. I had, I had loaded my truck full of, of my own doing. Yeah. But I also, ran all the normal traumatic stuff that a normal fire truck runs. Multiple loss. So that's your day job. And all that, yeah. Yeah. A little thing in my personal life went off, and that was the feather. And if I wasn't a firefighter, it wouldn't have been a significant event even. 
mm. or a significant conversation. But because the truck was loaded full, it all fell apart. Um, so I checked into a luxury hotel room in Scottsdale and administered a massive overdose of, of narcotics. Through divine intervention or circumstance or however you want to look at it, um, I was rescued. PD showed up, administered all of their intranasal Narcan, and then something I really regret happened, and that was that uh, the crew from Engine 603 in Scottsdale uh, from the other shift showed up, and they treated me. On the one hand, I'm very glad it was them because obviously they did a great job. I can still do math and remember my name, but that's one of the greatest re regrets that I have in, in all of my days was, was putting, putting that on them. them through that. Yeah. Um, I spent a week in the ICU. I was in a medically induced coma for a few days. They were trying to, uh, they were trying to extubate me, but I couldn't breathe on my own. Finally, they did that and it worked and I recovered for, for a few more days and, and one of our union, um, officers walked in and said, Hey man, there's a place in Maryland called the IFF center of excellence. You want to go? And I said, yeah, can we go now? <laughs> Dude, I didn't know, like, if you had handed me a map of the United States, I could have pointed to the East Coast to, to know where Maryland was, but I didn't, you know, I, um, that place, you know, Engine 603 saved my life, and the center, I think, sustained my life. Mm. Um, when I first showed up there, I think they were just trying to get me to, to not feel like killing myself, and keep in mind I had spent a week in the ICU and then I took a four hour transcontinental flight and I wound up with a pulmonary embolism in each lung oh, geez. in Maryland. So the first, the first couple days of, of my visit there were, were spent in the ER and then the ICU again. Um, got back to the center and that's when I started learning what, what PTSD is. And I sat down with, with Dr. Abby Morris, and she, within about 30 minutes of talking to me, diagnosed me with major depressive disorder, severe anxiety, and complex PTSD. And I didn't believe her. I, I had those same cultural hang-ups in myself that, sure. were, that were extrinsically present throughout my career, but had become internally present yeah so over the next few days after she diagnosed me that's when I really tuned in and started studying the signs and symptoms of PTSD in particular and I realized that I was checking most of these boxes and had been for years and those were things like social isolation for me Here's, here's how PTSD was a clever little bitch for me. Mm. She disguised herself as success. My social isolation came in the form of cycling training. I would train 20 hours a week. 
I, I raced at essentially a professional level for a lot of years and was very successful. Right. But it was PTSD disguising itself. Social isolation on the bike was 20 hours on, out on the road or on the mountain bike alone. And you're saying to yourself, look at me being all healthy. Right. Right. <laughs> Taking care of myself. Hypervigilance. Um, if you think I, I mean, even still, I can't do this, but if you think I could go into a, a busy restaurant and sit down with my back to the door or with my back to the room, no way. I, I would go in and I would look at where the exits were. I'd, I'd you know, kind of glance over every person in there and, and, um, Here's how that paid off one night at Olive and Ivy in downtown Scottsdale. Place is packed. I'm hypervigilant as hell. And I notice a man standing next to a, a woman who's, who's sitting down and kind of slumped over. And trying to provide some kind of aid. I hop up, walk over, ask him, hey, is she choking? And he said, I don't, I don't know, I think so. And then I put my hand on her shoulder and, and talked into her ear, are you choking? And she did the, you know, up and down, you know, up and down nod and, and hands around the throat. And I picked her up and did the Heimlich maneuver and boom, cleared her airway. <laughs> Success. See, and now you will forever be hypervigilant because now you know, <laughs> right. it's been reinforced. Yeah, yeah. Um, avoiding sight, sounds, and smells that remind us of traumatic events yeah i had a really bad call uh that that was it started out as a, a rescue of two victims in a or two patients in a an underground vault i'm sure you're familiar with it and everybody yeah. around here is that turned into a, a body recovery yeah. and you know from that point on i i avoided manhole covers and and sewer gas you know because that stuff reminded me of of that call yeah um unhealthy coping mechanisms exercise was one of them certainly um but drinking alcohol yeah. use i mean drink alcohol is such a part part of our, our culture when we celebrate mm -hmm. a promotion or a wedding or anything we drink right when we um when we mourn at a funeral or some kind of loss we drink when we're happy we drink when we're sad we drink when we you know it's just, it's in there in American culture, but it's really in there with fire culture. Yeah. Risk-taking behavior. I raced motorcycles for six years. That was risky. There were years where, I, I never wanted to crash, but there were years where I didn't give a shit if I did crash. I just wanted to go as fast as I possibly could. And with that came a, a lot of success again. I was, I was successful at that. Um... Yeah, all these things and more. I, I realized, yeah, I, man, I, I've been doing that for a long, long time, and I never thought it was this. And I, my crew, we, we were jerks, because if somebody did step forward for for mental health care mm -hmm. or got diagnosed with PTSD, we were ruthless, right. relentless, right. heartless. Yeah. What did that guy do? We've done all the all these things. It's the fire service is so competitive. It's a constant right. measuring contest. Right. Two things make us do that more than anything. Number one is firefighter of the year. Anytime somebody gets firefighter of the year, <laughs> everybody in the city goes bullshit. We deserve it more. We did right. this and that. 
or a PTSD claim. What did that guy do? What did that gal do? What, like we've done I've way been, more traumatic yeah, stuff I've been than on that they call. did. Yeah, they've, yeah. That, they've only been on five years. We've been right. on 15, 25. Right. Well, that's so, what, that story I was telling you earlier, right? I was had that same kind of attitude and it wasn't, you know, it's 21 something years on the job when, um, when I realized that my cup was full and running over and it wasn't until I had that little mini breakdown that I was like, Oh snap, mm-hmm. I have got to take care of myself. And it's not just time on the job and things you've done here. You know, it's, right. it's your, the totality of your life. And for us to, to look at somebody else and say, well, pff, uh, uh, that's a weak sister over there. You know, they did, what have they ever accomplished mm-hmm. or done? And you don't know that you don't know what's gone in that person's life. Right. And so many variables. So worry about your own garden. It's interesting to me, rain, that we can be so empathetic with a patient. <laughs> sure. Who, who really needs our help. Yeah. Not the, not somebody on the, at the bus stop that you, that you, oh, come a on. You know, they need, they need your help. Bus, come on. You know, somebody, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And everybody else. Does. Really sick people. But we. I'm with you. Uh, we lack that empathy with each other. Yeah. In our yes. in our own department and and a lot of times on our own truck. Mm-hmm. That's where it begins. Right. So I I spent 45 days at the center. Yeah. Well, so that was so I was going to ask you what are some of the what are some of the takeaways from that? I think that here here was one of the most interesting things. There's a there's a program that goes on during the day, during business hours. Mm-hmm. You're in group therapy, you're in classes, you're in appointments. And that stuff is all led by by providers. At night at the center, there is a campfire that that makes firefighters proud to have that campfire. So to, to, <laughs> it's to legit. Tell you, yeah, it's a bonfire <laughs> every night. Fun. Um that was where some of the best therapy took place Mm. because you're sitting there with people from around the country. Right. And you're talking about your uniforms. You're talking about what brand trucks you use. You're talking about your SCBAs. You're talking about what kind of patients you run, talking about your shift schedule, retirement and everything else. But you're also talking about what brought you to the center in the first place. Mm. And that gives you that feeling that you are not alone because the the junior guy that's riding around in the truck with four years on, um, who is who is feeling the signs and symptoms of of the trauma that that they're exposed to, isn't going to feel comfortable telling the 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 next most junior guy who's got seventeen years on about his feelings. Right. That that just doesn't happen. So that person feels very alone. By the same token, the captain on that truck with 25 years on can feel alone too. Right. Because that might, there, there might be an air of, I've got all this time on. Um, I've got to, I've got to look strong. What can these guys really provide me if they don't have the level of experience that I have? Right. Um, and be that as it may talk to a captain at a neighboring station. If that's the, if that's the case, right the four-year firefighter in the back seat, talk to your academy brother or sister because they've got exactly the same amount of time on as you do. You're not alone. Yeah. There's always somebody that you can talk to. So around the bonfire, 
you got that feeling of tribe, you got that feeling of team, you got that feeling of community, and that feeling that you were not alone. What I did in the state that I was in, it took a little while, but I realized, dude, when I first went there, I thought I was going back to the truck. Yeah. Once I realized the state that I was truly in, I, I came to understand that no, I right. not only should I not go back to the truck, but I, I can't go back to the truck because it literally almost killed me. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's like, that's the the genesis of the subtitle for the book, How the Fire Service Almost Killed Me. But um, I left there with an understanding of, of what I had going on, and I left there with a treatment plan. Hmm. And when I got back to the valley, I got hooked up with uh, an amazing psychologist, Jennifer Cooper with Public Safety Crisis Solutions. And an amazing psychiatrist by the name of Adnan Saljo, who was with Community Bridges mm. at that point. And they had just started a, a first responder program, and I was actually the first patient for, for this specialized portion of Community Bridges. So I, I had a support team there. I had a treatment team yeah. there. But I also had all the guys from the center, who I, I still keep in touch with with some of those people at some point when I, when I was, when I was probably in the middle of my career, people started saying, dude, you should write a book. I had a rock climbing fall in 2003 and broke my back in two places. I was super fit and I came back, got back on the truck. Right. I had a near fatal motorcycle racing accident at Firebird Raceway as a, a motorcycle road racer in 09 mid shaft femur fracture ankle fracture and two vertebrae in my neck came back got back on the truck that that was when people started saying dude well what the hell and of you course write a book. well and of course you're thinking at the center of excellence well i'm going back on the truck yeah because this is just another wicket you know another injury i'll right. be fine going yeah back. i almost died a couple times yeah. or almost didn't walk a couple times um yeah, I'll be fine because I've so, always come back. So what would you say to, you know, would you say anything, would you say anything to 18 year old Rick and be like, Hey bro, here's the, here's some things you need to tweak today. What would you say to him? I would, I would tell him, um, you're going to make mistakes in your life and, and you have a choice. You can either learn from them or you can keep making them. Making those mistakes does not make you a bad person. Not learning from them doesn't even really make you a bad person. Uh, it just, just makes you a little, <laughs> a little ignorant and prone to make them again. Um, I, would, I, would, I would definitely tell him that he needs to take good care of himself if he's going to make it out of life with a really good story to tell. Because if... If you don't, it, it's it's not going to go well. Yeah, the, those stories are going to be bad stories. They're going to be they're not going to be how you recovered from a rock climbing fall or a motorcycle accident. They're going to be how you wound up uh, in jail with your third DUI. How your 
fourth marriage failed or anything else. That's, that's the difference. I yeah. think you, you've got to take care of yourself and, and we have to take care of each other in right. the fire service. So, so for the young, well, for anybody who's sitting here right now saying, I, I think I'm good. What, how do you suggest they start taking care of themselves? What does that look like? It looks like maintenance instead of repair. When you buy a car, yeah, there's a warranty, but that's when, that's for when shit breaks. Then you take it back and, and you go, okay, fix it. We don't get a warranty when something breaks on us and yeah, okay. I've, I've been banged up plenty and, you know, and re- repaired <laughs> under warranty, but, um, you know, for, for the typical firefighter, the typical first responder, the typical military member that might be listening to this, if you start your career with a maintenance program in place from the beginning, you might not need the warranty program as much. You might not have to lean on, on that as much to, to fix injuries if yeah. you just take care of yourself. And what I mean by that is you don't have to, to have a mental health issue. You don't have to be diagnosed with a, with a mental health condition to secure care from a provider in the form of a counselor or a psychologist. Right doing that is a is a form of strength that's a form like sitting here you've you've seen the rig you know what i drive you know i like nice things i like nice things but i like my things nice so i take care of those nice things with maintenance and and proper operation right it's no different with your mental health so from the from the very beginning first responders and military members need to have the resources available to them, first of all, and need to understand that, that going in for regular maintenance or tune-up is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign that anything's wrong. It's a sign of strength, and it's a sign of, of wanting to continue to have the same amount of, of excitement and enthusiasm and empathy an adventure when the tones go off 24 years into your career as you did 24 hours into your career. That's the difference. And when you, when you take good care of yourself, I, I really think that's possible. I, yeah, I've been doing cool shit all summer. Yeah. It's undeniable. I would rather be riding around on a helicopter right now. <laughs> you know, riding the hoist cable out of Firebird 10 up in those mountains behind me, pulling off a rescue. But I can't because I didn't have the resources. And then when I did, I didn't use them. Yeah. Well, I think that's great advice, man. And, um, let me, um, let's talk a little bit about your project RB603. Um, and what that looks like. And then I want to ask you some rapid fire questions and we'll pull it to a close. Cool. So what, so look, tell me about that project. What are you out doing? And, and it started with the book and the book started with the journal that I was handed at the center of excellence. They hand you an empty composition book and I'm like, what, what is this for? And they said, well, you should start journaling. And a few days in, I just, I, I started and I wrote, I think I wrote about the first four or five chapters in the book at the center. And then when I got back, it, it was a three-year project, and I got hung up on some chapters that were very difficult to write because it was 
it was therapeutic and cathartic and, and healthy mm-hmm. because I, I took on writing in a, in a careful and calculated way because I very easily could have been traumatic to me again because I was going into great detail on, on a lot of things. And I wrote the book kind of as a ride-along. There are chapters where I talk about the fire service in general or my personal life and, and events that are happening. And then the next chapter is a call. The tones dropped for a drowning in Phoenix and mm. we responded. So I take the reader through that. You get to run a call and then the next chapter we're talking about other Eating things. cold chow. Cause that <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I finally did write the book. I published it this year, but that wasn't enough. I needed to take it to 11. So I decided that I wanted to tell my story. And when I got to the point where I could tell my story without breaking down, I knew that, that it was time to do it. And that took a few tries. Um, I've always listened to podcasts and audiobooks, and, you know, with all my time that I spent on two wheels, I, I you know, listen to stuff. So I reached out to some big podcasts and I thought, what's the worst they could do? Just say no. A few of them said yes. And I flew to go record a few of them. Yeah. And then people started reaching out to me and I thought, oh shit, what did I do? Yeah. I saw you were on uh, cleared hot was the, the one that I yeah, saw. Yeah. Um, which is a great podcast. I love that podcast. It is. Andy's awesome. Yeah. I, I sat down with him for a second time this summer. I've been on the black rifle podcast, uh, the Fieldcraft survival podcast, you know, some big platforms. And yeah. I, and I, I reach out to these people with that idea. Like what's the worst they could do? I mean, I sent, I sent copies of my book to Jocko Willink, to, uh, to Joe Rogan, to Oprah, to Ellen. Hey, I'm going to put lines in the water There you go. because the story's got to get out. So yeah. when I thought, oh shit, what did I do? I thought, oh shit, what am I going to do? And that is tell this story in front of as many people as I can in order to show people that they're not alone in this, to show people that it it's okay to step forward and ask for help and to eliminate the stigma involved with, with doing so. Right. So yeah, the earlier this year on, on April 25th of this year, I drove out of Scottsdale, uh, East did a Midwest book tour and then worked my way North and, Spent time up in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and now I'm kind of at the end of the loop. I did, I've done 15 states so far, and uh, I've spoken to everything from a a group, a small group of people around a campfire at a, at a guest ranch, yeah. um, to you know standing on stages with a microphone in my hand to to military and other audiences, and everything in between, and I love them all, and. And I can do it now. I, I still have PTSD, anxiety, and depression. But I'm equipped with tools to cope with it now. Right. And the fact that you recognize it is a huge win. That's a huge, yeah. it's a huge win in that process. If, you, if you're sitting here thinking, I'm good to go, um, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. So that's huge. Where, where but can that's folks... not to say... No, two, ahead, so two things. Yeah. That's not to say that everybody is broken. Right. And it's definitely not, not to say this. When I show up to speak, I'm not there to tell everybody that they need to medical out or they need to go sit before a medical board with the military. I, that's, like I said, I would rather be running calls right now. 
my message is to take care of yourselves so that you can yeah. serve a full career yeah. and, and make it to retirement. Uh, here's two sad stats. We lose more firefighters every year to suicide than we do to a line of duty death. And there's another stat, I, I forget, it just, it just got updated, but there's a, there's a, a very short amount of time that first responders live after retirement. Mm. So right. you, we might make it to retirement, but we don't enjoy retirement right. for very long right? because we just don't, we don't survive. Right. So yeah, that's, that's the message. Yeah. I, my, one of my taglines is I'm smashing the stigma one story at a time. Yeah. All right. I love it. Where can, where would folks find you on social media and everything is book, linked. If you go to, if you go to, uh, rb603.net, everything is on there. Links to the book, links to, uh, podcast interviews, YouTube episodes that I've done. Um, yeah, social media links. It's all there, rb603.net. Okay. All right, Rick, let me close out with a couple rapid-fire questions. Yeah. And just short answer, what first comes to your mind. Favorite place to ride your mountain bike? In the summer with the ferns fully grown in on the Arizona Trail, uh, the section that is just west of Arizona Snowball. Nice best route you've ever rock climbed or favorite i guess oh, there's a there's a climb on uh yeah you know what the grand teton that was a, that was a good one nice so, yeah i love that um oh and my my last question uh what does it mean to you to be fireground fit I've been thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. You're prepared for this. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a physical and a mental thing. Yeah. You know, if you, if you're fit to be on the fire ground, you're safe. Number one, that's always first. We all know that in the fire service safety is, is the first consideration and that's safety for yourself, safety for your crew and safety for the people that you're, that you're hopefully helping. You've got to be physically fit and that's take, Dude, that's taken on a different shape, literally, since we started. Mm. Uh, it's more of a, it's more of an athlete. It's more of an athlete now. It's more of a rounded athlete instead of a power lifter. That mm. that's a firefighter that can, that can w do a lot of work with a with a small amount of air. <laughs> but it's also mental preparation, because not only do you have to be able to keep your your shit together mentally in order to open up the tunnel vision that you have as a booter in order to see the things that are dangerous and the, and the fire behavior that can get you. You've got to be mentally fit to take care of yourself afterwards and to take care of each other after the call. It's a package deal. Fireground fitness is is your health, it's your training, it's your experience, it's everything about you as a firefighter, and it all matters. Amen. Rick, thank you for sharing your message, having the courage to to share and be vulnerable with people because your message matters, and, and, and frankly, uh, it will save firefighter lives. 
So thank you for doing that. And, and it'll save the lives of, of Leo and military and anybody who's listening to this, who, um, the life is fucking hard and, uh, you don't have to be a firefighter to get piled on by life. So thank you for sharing that message, Rick. I really appreciate you. Where, Absolutely. where does this, uh, this travel machine go next? I set the ambitious goal of skiing a hundred days this season. Oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to start, you right I'm gonna start skiing <laughs> next week. But having said that, um, if anybody listening would like to have me, uh, come and appear and speak or just visit, um, at their department or their organization, it doesn't have to be first responder or military related. It can be a company. It can be anything. I will, I will tell my story. If you think it'll, it'll help your people and, uh, help you take on a strong leadership position and show that you care about your people, uh, reach out to me and let's get together. Right on. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. That's all we have for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, special thanks to Rick for sharing his time and talents. And if you are enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, get on over to whatever platform you and you like to listen on. Subscribe. This podcast will drop in the middle of the night. Also, get on over to Apple Podcasts. Rate and review the podcast. This puts it in front of other audiences. And that is good. So, take the lessons you've gleaned here today. Figure out a way that you can make yourself healthier, improve your mental clarity, your wellness, etc. And go on, get after it.